I'd like to invite you to turn with me to John 6, verses 15 to 21. It's on the front of the bulletin. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation. John 6, 15 to 21. Jesus saw that they were ready to take him by force and make him king, so he went higher into the hills alone. That evening his disciples went down to the shore to wait for him, but as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed out across the lake toward Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them as they rowed, and the sea grew very rough. They were three or four miles out when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified, but he called out to them, I am here, don't be afraid. Then they were eager to let him in, and immediately the boat arrived at their destination. Our pastor is going to give us the sermon now, The Storm on the Lake. Thank you, Albert. To set the setting for our story that we just read, here's the recap. The last sermon revealed how busy Jesus and his disciples were in conducting missionary campaigns all through Galilee. Something that we don't, well, we're not usually aware of. In the A.D. 29, one in the summer of that year, the second one in the early autumn of A.D. 29, and the third one during the winter of A.D. 29 and 30. Now, when the Bible says, as Dean mentioned in our, our study this morning, that there are many things in the Bible that are not, rec- well, many things that Jesus did that are not in the Bible. And these are some of those things right here that uh, he and his disciples were involved with. The results of these missionary campaigns all throughout Galilee um, were uh, really encouraging. Many, many people followed Jesus. Immediately after his appointment of the disciples, they went from city to city, from village to village, 200 villages in all throughout Galilee. So we only have a glimpse of the ministry of Jesus uh, that are given in the Gospels. There was much more. John the Baptist, at about in the spring of A.D. 30, it was a troubling time. Uh, he had been in prison for about a year. Uh, that's easily forgotten. We don't, aren't aware of the fact he was in prison for a full year based upon the capriciousness of Herod the king and because of his ego. <laughs> he put John in prison. And John began to become concerned. And he was concerned because John's whole mission in life was to uplift and tell about who? Jesus. And now he had been in prison for a year. Would you begin to wonder a few things? What's going on? And so he sent some of his disciples to find Jesus to ask the question, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Can you ever imagine those words coming out of John the Baptist's lips? We are very human, aren't we? Even a man like John the Baptist, who was raised for this purpose, who had a soul for this purpose, can have doubts. And they did appear after a year in Herod's prison. John had been Jesus' truest believer and defender. Well, to respond to John's question, Art thou the one? Jesus simply said, Report to John again those things which you hear and see. Look at what I'm doing. Tell that back to John. And they did. Don't trust your senses. Go by your heart. 
John did. And then this is what Jesus said. It was an amazing eulogy to John the Baptist. You don't find eulogies like this anywhere in the Bible except here. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. He said that right after John expressed doubt. Isn't that amazing about God? Don't you just love that about God? He knew that John was sincere. He knew that he was real. And it was amazing. Six months later, John was dead. The worst thing that could have happened, happened. And, uh, but he died satisfied, knowing that Jesus was the one. Now, after this experience with John the Baptist, as a recap to what's going to take place now, uh, Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth on the Sabbath in the synagogue and he preached. And they were astonished at him. And this is what they said. From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Who are you and where do you come from and who gives you this authority? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? And aren't not his sisters here with us? He's just like us. No better. They were offended about Jesus. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor in his own country and among his own kin and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there save that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. But he marveled at their unbelief. And I want to say that unbelief is something that we all have. We all suffer from that. Just to give you another perspective, by now, in the Passover of A.D. 30, now, when did Jesus die? One year later. 70% of Jesus' ministry is past. Would you count that ministry to be marvelously successful? Even his, most, his hometown has rejected him. His own uh, advanced uh, apostle, John the Baptist, was questioning for a while anyway. 70% of his ministry is past. And even though he was involved with training his disciples, they didn't look like a very trustworthy group as you will find out. Just one year, and the church would be handed over to them. Would you feel encouraged if that was you? You think so? AD 30? Satan was agitating for them to seize them, and by force against his will, to make Jesus king. This was right after the feeding of the 5,000, and that's all it took. The feeding of the 5,000 convinced everybody that he could do it. Jesus could be their king. And he had the power. And look what he could do. You know? And they wanted to take him by force. They wanted to manhandle him and make him king. Well, when you look at the words that they used and you listen to what's going on here, Satan is putting in their hearts the very same temptations that he put before Jesus in the wilderness. You know, uh, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. 
all of that kind of stuff. Mm, this was a turning point. No, not acting decisively at this time could derail his ministry. And so when he had this pressure coming in from the people and from his own disciples and how discouraging that must have been in some ways, he realized he had to act right now or his whole ministry could be in jeopardy. And what did he do? He did something very unusual for Jesus. When you read the story in the gospel, right after the feeding of the 5,000, there was this fervor to make him king. Jesus stepped in and in a way of authority, a manner of authority that was very rarely his, he'd sent his disciples down to the boat. He says, you go cross the lake. They didn't want to argue with him. He was very direct. He told the crowds to dismiss and go home. He wasn't going to give this chance of trying to make him king any place to find root. He took decisive action. Now, who was involved in this action to make him king? Well, you can see the name, can't you, up there? He had a political agenda. And I'm going to take this quote out of Desire of Ages. She says it so well here. Jesus was excuse me, Judas was continually advancing the idea that Christ would reign as king in Jerusalem. At the feeding of the 5,000, he tried to bring this about. On this occasion, Judas assisted in distributing the food to the hungry multitude. He had an opportunity to see the benefit which, its power, which it was in his power to impart to others. He felt the satisfaction that always comes in service to God. He helped to bring the sick and the suffering from among the multitude to Christ. He saw what relief, what joy and gladness come to human hearts through the healing power of the restorer. He might have comprehended the methods of Christ, but he was blinded by his own selfish desires. Can you imagine living in the presence of Jesus those years that John, Judas did and somehow managed to rewrite everything about Jesus in his brain differently than what Jesus was? Judas was the first to take advantage of the enthusiasm by the crowd that day to make him king. And excited by the miracles of the loaves, it was he who set on foot the project to take Christ by force and make him king. His hopes were high, his disappointment was great. Okay, <clears throat> Jesus didn't fit into Judas's plan. E.G. White said, Christ's discourse in the synagogue concerning the bread of life was the turning point in the history of Judas. The bread of life? What about the bread of life? Uh, he heard the words, except you what? The flesh of the Son of Man, and what? You have no life in you. He saw that Christ was offering spiritual rather than worldly good, and he regarded himself as far-sighted and thought he could see that Jesus would have no honor with Jesus and that he could bestow no high position upon his followers, and he determined not to unite himself so closely with Christ that he could not draw away. He would watch, and he did watch. Now, so that's what was going on in Judas's mind. What about the rest of the disciples? When they left Jesus, he was dissatisfied. It, it was with dissatisfied hearts. He had sent them quickly to the boats, and now they were sad. They were sulking, more impatient with him than ever before since acknowledging him as their Lord. They murmured because they had not been permitted to proclaim him king. They blamed themselves for yielding so readily to his command. 
and they reasoned that if they had just been more persistent, they might have accomplished their purpose. And so, they go down to the boat, and who are they mad at? Themselves and Jesus. Themselves for letting Jesus have his way. They should have intervened and made sure that they made him king. Unbelief was taking possession of their minds and hearts. Love of honor had blinded them to be united with a teacher who could work mighty miracles and yet be reviled as deceivers was a trial they could ill endure. Well, were they always to be accounted followers of a false prophet? Would Christ never assert his authority as king? Why had he not saved John the Baptist from a violent death? The disciples reasoned until they brought upon themselves spiritual darkness. Have you ever get caught, got caught in that kind of a cycle? You just start thinking about all the troubles and all the things that are going wrong and pretty soon the lights went out. It's just dark, just plain dark. They questioned, could Jesus be an imposter? And you know, when the lights go out and it gets dark, we could ask that question too. So he sends them on to the boat. With an authority not before seen, he forces them all to depart, including his disciples. And straightway he constrained the disciples to get into the ship and go to the other side before uh, unto Bethsaida. Uh, while he spent away, sent away the people, and when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Their leisurely one-hour trip, which should have taken them to get from one side to the other, took about eight hours. God did that. Their hearts, their thoughts were far from him. They were filled with thoughts of self, which is satanic. It was Satan, it's what Satan promotes. If moved by that, Christ was not in them. Had Jesus ever led them to believe what they desired was what he wanted, making him king? Had he ever given them reason to believe that? Have we ever given, has God ever given us reason to believe some of the things that we cherish? We think an awful lot about the blessings and God has told us there's going to be a lot of hardship. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force and make him king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, his disciples went down to the sea and entered into a ship and went over to the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five or twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh into the ship, and they were afraid. They were afraid. But he said unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whether they went. How quickly was it there? Immediately. immediately. Was that a miracle? This was the second life-threatening storm that the disciples had been through. The first was just a few months earlier. You remember at that time, Jesus was sleeping in the boat. Storm came up, threatened to sub... Well, they were taking on water. They were going to sink. And Jesus was woken, stood up, calmed the waters, and immediately it was still. 
They had lived through that just a few months before. How easily we forget the blessings when a new problem comes our way. Oh my. I'm going to skip over this one here. So now you got the second storm. From across the waves, they see something. And that something was Jesus. And how does he introduce himself? It is I. Don't be afraid. He uses the familiar term that's in the Bible that they use at that time, the Septuagint. Ego imi. I am. I am that I am. The name that God had revealed himself in the Old Testament as. Some declaration, same declaration God used when speaking to Moses at the burning bush. And God said at the burning bush to Moses, I am that I am. Meaning the one speaking to them walking across the water was none other than whom? The same one that spoke to Moses. The same one that guided the children of Israel all through their wilderness journey. It was Jesus. I am. Deuteronomy. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God with me. The 5,000 and the disciples were doing exactly what Satan did in the wilderness temptations. When tempted to turn stone into bread, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. There on the mountaintop, they wanted to use this miracle to kind of their advantage. And Jesus says, you're not supposed to live that way. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. God doesn't ask us to believe in ourselves. Even Jesus didn't do that. He said, not my will, but thine be done. He was God. He was the I am. And he said, not my will, but thine. And that's the way we are to live too. That's the way his disciples finally came to live. As soon as trouble appeared, Jesus dismissed both the disciples and he went to the mountain, uh, the disciples in the crowd, and he went to the mountain to be with God. No life ever lived was so selfless, so surrendered to God. That's what it means to have faith. Be selfless and surrendered to God. Well, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, that is, ongoing, continual faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Jesus had planted in his disciples the seed of faith, but it fell, like in the parable, on the wayside, not lodging at the core of their being. Therefore, it could easily be kicked aside, only later to be eaten by the fowl of the air. That's what was going on during these years with his disciples and with the crowd of people. Their hearts were not yet good soil that hears the word and treasures it, yielding a rich harvest. As quickly as the storm had risen, it was over, and immediately the ship was on the shore. Why couldn't they believe? Why is it so hard for us to believe? How come they were so slow in the very presence of Jesus? By the way, on the missionary journeys, even performing miracles in the name of Jesus, why was it so hard? Well, the Bible tells us in the faith chapter, Hebrews 11, I looked through this recently and this is what I saw. Noah believed in something never before seen. Abraham believed, but with frequent slips 
that he would become the father of many people. And you know, you could look at the stats today and over the half of the population of the world flows through the loins of Abraham, just like God had promised. Isaac believed enough to do what? Let his father take his life to be the sacrifice. That's an amazing thing. Joseph believed even when everything failed for him, he continued to believe. Moses' belief turned an entire nation around even when at the beginning he didn't want to have anything to do with it. David went up against a giant and armies because of his belief. More than anything, Daniel wanted to remain in his homeland, but he never got a chance to go back. He was an exile in a foreign land, and he kept his faith. Jeremiah, given a horrible 40-year task to reprove the people, he said, God, this is the worst thing you could ever do to me. Why are you doing this? He wanted to be relieved all the time, but he still stayed the course. It was faith. Isaiah stood strong for God for over 50 years. His life ended being sawn in two. They never saw the fulfillment of their hopes, Paul says in Hebrews. These disciples lived daily with the Messiah. How come they had such a hard time believing? What is faith? Here is what I have surmised from the book of Hebrews 11. Being able to see things differently than everyone else. Recognizing the costs and being willing to pay for them. Believing in God and living by his promise. Far from being persuaded and embracing the prize, while being content to be strangers and pilgrims on the earth, they looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. And Hebrews tells us over again, they looked and looked and looked all through their life and some of them never saw it. Just never got a chance to see it. But they continued. Obeying when it means the loss of everything. Willing to surrender the sure for the unsure. To live in constant pursuit of God. This is what it means to have faith. This is what his disciples needed to have. This is what John needs. This is what all of us need. To remain true when all hope is gone. And so God will allow the tempter to take away almost everything from us so our faith can become strong. Their hope was in the invisible. Hardships and loss were not important when weighed against eternal things. That's what it means to have faith. So if we think that Christianity is basically living a charmed life, that's not what it's all about. And you know, all the way to the end, it may fail to get there. All the way to the end. But oh, what a sweet treasure it is to God that we love him in spite of the fact that it doesn't give us what we want, what we'd like. Well, so when they saw that they were about to sink and about to fall down, this is where that story comes in of Peter. Don't you just love Peter? He's right out there in the front, even if he's acting a little foolish. But straightway Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not be afraid. 
And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Would you have done that? I think I might have been tempted. Huh? And he said, come. Now, why didn't all of them go? <laughs> Jesus said to Peter, come. Maybe they should have all jumped out. That boat was going down, right? They'll just walk home <laughs> on the water. Anyway, and uh, when Peter was come out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore dost thou doubt? Jesus was not given the luxury of doubting at all. He wouldn't go there. Enabling us to see things differently than anybody else sees them. That's what Hebrews talks about too. Clinging to the invisible. Surrendering the sure for the unsure. Recognizing the cost, willing to pay them, obeying what it means, and the loss of everything. All of these things. Believing and living by the promises. Um, I think I've already talked about those. Okay, here's what I want to share here. This storm that they went through was unique in the fact that it prepared them for the darkness that would follow when Jesus died. This storm was important because it also was teaching them how to be triumphant and experience the foretaste of the glorious resurrection and even his triumphant ascension. It taught them how to depend fully upon him so they can go forward. Now, I have been learning in my life recently, and I know you have too. How are we doing on this thing called faith? It's hard. I'm always wanting to write the conclusion in a different way than the Lord is choosing to write it. I'd like to be able to kind of like retire and travel and do a bunch of fun things, you know. I'd like to have my little sports car fixed up, yeah. I'd like to have, uh, you know, a bunch of things. And I'm kind of realizing, why? After Jesus has done all of that. Yeah. Well, the sports car, I wonder. Uh, how are we doing? How are we doing in living this kind of faith? You know, this is one of the signs that was given by John that was intended to teach us that believing in Jesus Christ, to believe in Jesus Christ. This is one of them. And, and how are we doing on this? I take great heart in the fact that in our worst trouble, God is always there. So many times when I have failed him, when my faith isn't strong, and I feel myself going down like Peter, Lord, save me, I'm just about on my way out. He reaches out his hand and picks me up. And he never stops doing that. And he doesn't give me a lecture about all the times that I've failed. He just takes me up and lifts me out. Amen. These are some of the signs. By looking at Hebrews chapter 11, I discovered that God wants to get rid of every other desire and hope in our hearts so that the only thing we see is Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to live by faith.
If we have any of those other single desires in our heart, we'll end up where Judas went. I can't afford that. I can't afford that. Father in heaven, as we're taking this journey through the book of John and we realize that you are telling us some very important things through your disciple who loved you very much, we realize that they let their own desires get in the way and almost destroyed what you were trying to do. And I'm so thankful that you had to be hard and direct because your kingdom is not of this world. Your kingdom is in the heart and it is trust and it is faith. It's belief in you, unconditional faith and belief in you. And I pray that you will keep us to the course, Lord. Keep me to the course. Help me never to start planning my life. Help me never start thinking about my desires. And help us all to feel that way so that we can be true disciples and eventually have the privilege of doing something wonderful for you for all of the wonderful things that you have done for us. Maybe a simple thing that's wonderful or it may be a grand thing, but just to serve you. And I pray that this sign might remain in our heart forever that will cause us to have true faith and belief in you. Help us to not live by our own desires but by yours. From each one of our hearts to you, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is right behind us here. It's 534, I believe. And will your anchor hold? Well, you don't need an anchor. You just need to have your hand in Jesus, right?
Lord bless you and keep you as you go home and live out your life for Jesus in the days and the weeks ahead. May those around you feel the special blessing of the Lord in your heart. And may it shine on your face. And may songs from your heart lift everybody around you. May God bless you and keep you in Jesus' name.